0: So I grew up in a racing household.
1: Ryan Goldberg is a freelance journalist who's been covering horse racing for the last 20 years.
0: You can pretty much say modern horse racing is in his blood. There were photos from the racetrack all around the walls of my family home. My dad had been a racehorse trainer before I was born in the 70s and early 80s, and then he left racing altogether to take, for him, what was a more stable job.
1: Even though his dad left the sport, Ryan remembers spending days with him watching the horses race. They live five minutes away from Monmouth Park Racetrack in New Jersey. And he can still picture the first race he went to. The crowds that day were probably 35 40,000 people. Ryan was 10 years old. It was a hot summer day, August 1st of 1993. And it was a big race. The Haskell Invitational. They got there early in the morning and... There was a real sense of anticipation as the day wore on. Ryan was excited. He and his dad waded their way through the large beech trees and found a shady spot against the track railing. The race hadn't started yet, but the horses were getting
0: ready for the run. I wanted to get really close to see the horses before the Haskell, as the trainers were putting the saddles on the horses, and the trainer then would give the jockey a leg up onto the saddle, and be giving last minute instructions. Ryan had a front row seat with his dad. They waited, and
1: finally, it was time. The bell clanged, and the horses charged out of their stalls. They galloped around the track, raising up dust and cheers from the crowd, and Ryan could see it all, which was good because,
0: well, he had some skin in the game. I bet $2 to win on a horse named Kiss and Chris to win the Haskell, which was the big race, and the horse won and paid like $8 and change. I was like, wow, that's that's not so hard, but it's very hard. For me, as an 11-year-old, it was a really magical experience.
1: Ryan remembers the thrill of winning on the bet he made that day. How glamorous the whole industry seemed at the time. Thousands of people gathered to cheer the horses on. These magnificent animals, racing for million dollar purses. Their wealthy owners watching from the box stands. People laying down their cash on their favorite steed. The money seemed to just keep pouring in. But within a few years, unbeknownst to Ryan and most other horse racing fans, horse racing tracks around the country were changing and the money would keep pouring in, just not from
0: where you'd expect it. Most racetracks in America depend on public subsidies and dozens of racetracks in America would close if those subsidies were pulled. They would close overnight. If you live in one of those
1: 25 states that publicly subsidizes horse racing, well, the person who's paying for it is you, to the tune of a billion
0: dollars a year. The racing lobby doesn't want people to know about it. They want it to remain a secret. They bank on these things remaining a secret. I'm Alzo Slade. And from something else, this is Cheap, the show where we
1: ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, how the American horse racing industry got the government to bet on them with billions of dollars in taxpayer money, which is your money. Horse racing is one of the oldest sports in the world. Around the year 40 BC, which is a hell of a long time ago, during the Olympics in ancient Greece, athletes would compete in horse-drawn chariot races. They'd also race horses bareback. And as time marched on, organized horse racing spread across the globe, from China to Persia to North Africa and the Middle East. It's been known as the sport of kings. And it's also been part of American history since this country was colonized.
0: It has its roots going back to actually around the time before even the Revolutionary War back in the 1600s, and sort of its modern-day roots really began around the time of the Civil War. The Civil War. So, you know, there were
1: actually North versus South rival horse races. The first races of the Triple Crown were established before the Civil War even ended. In its early days in the U.S., the racetrack was one of the few places where the wealthy elites rubbed elbows with the poor folks. By the 1900s, over 300 racetracks existed throughout America. And eventually, the sport spread west when Gold Rush settlers brought thoroughbreds to California. It was clear, horse racing was a hit. What other sport out there is known for traditions like mint juleps, your Sunday best outfits and fancy hats? The Kentucky Derby? was as much of a social event and fashion show as it was a sporting event. And it wasn't just the thrill of the race that garnered droves of fans. No, it was that rush of adrenaline that made it feel like magic
0: to a young Ryan.
1: And a lot of that had to do with the betting.
0: It's a gambling sport. Racing was at its most popular when it was the only thing you could bet on. So it was before the lottery, when states created lotteries. For a long time, if you wanted to gamble legally, your only
1: option was to do it at the racetrack.
0: For the longest time, racing basically had a monopoly on what to bet on. So even if you weren't that interested in racing, but you wanted to gamble, this was pretty much the only game in town. And it was legal. You could go to the racetrack and bet. And in the 60s and 70s, the crowds on a given weekend at some of the most popular tracks would have 60 or 70,000 people. Back then, a racetrack
1: made its money by taking their cut out of the betting pool. Let me explain how it went down. People would bet on horses, and the track would take all the bets and pay out about 80% to the winning bettors. What's left goes to the track, and they use it for something called the purse, which is the money that goes to horse owners and jockeys. And then what's left from that,
0: it goes to the cost of running the operation, including taxes to the state government. The economics of horse racing was pretty simple. There's no sort of house like you would see in a casino where if you beat the casino, like you win and the casino loses. In horse racing in the US, it's um, a pari system, which basically means like you're sort of betting against your fellow bettors. And so the odds on a given horse, or the odds on any bet are dictated by the amount of money that is wagered. And so the track itself really has no interest in sort of who wins the race.
1: And for decades, it seemed to work great. Then, state gambling laws started to open up in the mid-90s. Riverboat gambling was legalized across America. Casinos started popping up all over the country, and not just in Las Vegas or Atlantic City. Even before commercial casinos, there were casinos opening up on Native American reservations. And more and more states introduced lotteries. So slowly, gambling just became another American pastime, and racetracks,
0: started to suffer. So the amount of money bet on racing as a whole started to decline. As new technology popped up, how people bet on the races started to change. Something called simulcasting was introduced in which people could bet on a given track, like at home or at a off-track betting parlor. They could basically watch it on TV somewhere outside the track. And so as sort of the attendance started to decline at racetracks, it just started to lose popularity. The money started being sort of siphoned off. Year after year, racetracks have
1: continued to lose fans. Some tracks, which used to be teeming with people, have emptied out. They're like ghost towns. Breeders, owners, and racetracks knew they needed to do something if the sport was gonna survive. And they decided to get creative. This idea of the Racino was born. Racino, a mashup of the two words race and casino. It was a new way for racetracks to make money. But at what cost? That's after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time.
0: Suddenly, out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden
1: you'll meet the people who live life undercover what do they know what are their skills and what would you do in their position
0: vengeance felt good seeing these people pay for what they had done felt righteous
1: true spies from Spyscape studios wherever you get your podcasts have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island jane gaskin did exactly that As crowds and spectators started to find new ways to gamble, fewer people went to the racetracks to bet. That means not only did the size of the prize money, called the purse in horse racing, get smaller and smaller, so did the profits everyone took home, the owners, the jockeys and caretakers, and especially the racetracks. The horse racing industry came up with a plan to get the government to let them set up their own gambling establishment they wanted to create
0: racinos. Ryan reported the story for Defector. And so casino companies that maybe wanted to build their own portfolio and expand saw, well, here are facilities that are already in place. We can just tack on a building next to it and put slots there, or maybe even in some cases, put slots on one floor and then the bottom floor can stay for the horse racing betters. And that's really how it started. Maybe it happened like this. It's a warm summer day
1: at some racetrack in, I don't know, let's say Pennsylvania. And a racetrack owner is having a friendly chat with a government official sitting next to him while they watch the races. The owner's like, wow, attendance numbers are way down. And you know what would help lure people back to the track and keep all those great jobs we've created and help generate revenue for the state would be if you let us build a casino or a slot parlor next to the
0: track, what you think? Wink, wink. So these subsidies for horse racing have kind of happened in the shadows. They've happened in, like, state legislatures. They've happened in the conversations between powerful politicians and wealthy racetrack owners, wealthy breeders.
1: The industry argued that giving subsidies to racinos would protect horse racing from all the new out-of-state riverboat and casino competition, and it would protect the government's flow of taxpayer money because money spent at racinos would stay in the state. Let's say after a long week, you go to your local track and you play the slots. Half of the money you lose gets paid to the state in taxes, and a chunk of that money is used for the regular stuff you'd expect from the government you know, to help with education or to keep local municipalities running. But racetrack owners and breeders also wanted some of that money to go back into the industry. In Pennsylvania,
0: they convinced state governments to create the Racehorse Development Fund. This Racehorse Development Fund is like a direct cash pipeline to racehorse owners and breeders and trainers.
1: The state legalized gambling in 2004, and
0: soon after, it got its first racino. It was enshrined in law that the racing industry would get 12% of the slot revenues. The industry argued that slots
1: and racetracks helped the state's tourism industry. So Pennsylvania put a 55% tax on slot revenue, and up to 12% of those tax dollars went to the horse race industry. Since 2004, $3 billion has gone into the fund, and the fund pays out about $240 million annually, most of which goes towards the purses. Suddenly. That age-old calculation that however much people bet in a race would determine how much money a horse can win, it
0: was no longer true. And so regardless of what was bet on the races, that didn't determine their purses anymore. The more that was bet on the slots, the more that racing would get out of that. It created a pretty big shift in mindset. The racing industry in Pennsylvania then, it was sort of like, why do we have to invest any money in, in making something that people want to bet on? We know we're going to get pretty much a lot of money each year, regardless of what happens on the track, that money's coming from slot machines. Suddenly, people were coming, but it wasn't to watch the races. Nobody there cares about racing. Everyone there is, like, at the slot parlor. Racetrack owners hoped the development funds would go towards bigger
1: purses at the races because they thought larger purses would attract more owners who would run more and better horses. And that would mean maybe the races would be exciting again and people would show up to watch. In Pennsylvania, the Racehorse Development Fund has become the state's largest economic development program. And for years, aside from a few vocal citizens, no one really worried about
0: it. So in 2020, the governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, in his budget address, announced that he was proposing a $200 million fund for college scholarships. The
1: catch? That scholarship money would come out of the Race Horse Development Fund. The plan would still leave $40 million annually for racing, but the proposal would radically change how horse racing was funded. The announcement caught the attention of Sharon Ward, Wolf's former budget director. At the urging of some education organizers hoping to garner public support for the proposal, Sharon started to assess
0: where exactly the development funds were being used. She knew about the Racehorse Development Fund, which, as she told me, was more than you could say for even a lot of state legislators, even just the fact that it existed. Like Ryan, Sharon
1: was a horse racing fan. Before working in Pennsylvania, she'd been on the Albany City
0: Council in New York. And if you are a politician in upstate New York, you go to Saratoga Racecourse every summer. It's like part of the job description, basically. So being a race fan, Sharon just thought, hey, this money must be
1: justified. The industry has been around forever and is probably producing tons of jobs. It must be, right? To be getting millions of dollars every year. But that's not what she found. <laughs> she read the state audits, pored over Racetrack's fiscal reports. She even looked over years worth of racing commission meetings. She realized that this state money wasn't just going to purses to help draw people to the sport. No, it was funding support for the breeders, pension benefits for track employees, drug tests for horses, advertising costs for the racetracks. And the end result, the Pennsylvania horse racing community relied on so many subsidies that it seemed more like a publicly funded program than a private business and its promise to create jobs and bring in tourism? Well, Ward's report revealed that the horse racing industry created just over 1,700 full-time track jobs and fewer than 10,000 direct
0: jobs overall. As a sort of comparison, the tourism industry in Pennsylvania gets $18 million a year in public support compared to $240 million for horse racing. Meanwhile, the tourism industry, she found, creates 310,000 jobs a year. Sharon thought,
1: surely this has to be enough evidence to show that the horse racing industry is getting way too much tax money from the public. Something would have to change, right? But that's not what happened. More on that after the break. After Sharon Ward's report was published in 2020, not much changed in Pennsylvania it was pretty much dead on arrival. Reason? The racetrack beneficiaries rose to the occasion. The report was thorough and thoughtful. But breeders, trainers, and wealthy horse owners,
0: well, they were ready to push back. So in Pennsylvania, they've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to political candidates on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, that good old power of the purse, huh? It is a very long
1: game. But the house often wins in gambling, right? And if anyone knows that, it's the racehorse industry. Racehorse breeders, trainers, and owners in the state have banded together through different associations to make sure that their purses, both literally and figuratively, stay propped up by the public. They've formed political action committees and have gotten, let's say, pretty creative in the ways that they raise money to lobby for their cause. What's interesting
0: and sort of devious in Pennsylvania is that some of the associations there actually have a small fee on each horse in each race that the owner of that horse has to pay and that money then goes into a political action committee.
1: The Horsemen's Association charges owners money to run their horses and the association decided at some point that half of the fee they charge would go to their political action committee. But here's the thing. They didn't tell people that that's what they were doing. And they certainly didn't tell the owners that it was voluntary and
0: that they could opt out. So everyone ends up paying it. And so the horsemen's associations have raised just since 2017, something like a half million dollars that they then have donated just through these fees. But the
1: horse racing industry hasn't just been successful because of its lobbying efforts. It's sort
0: of tried to rig the game itself. In 2016, Act 7 was passed by the state legislature in Pennsylvania, and it's actually signed by Governor Tom Wolf. The law dissolved the two commissions that overlooked horse racing and instead
1: tried to establish a regulatory authority, the State Horse Racing Commission, that would have exclusive jurisdiction over horse race betting and any other horse racing activities. Which sounds great, right? But in practice?
0: This... Law actually made it harder for money to be pulled out of the Resource Development Fund into other services. The governor and the legislature, every year they have their budget negotiations. They can move money from one line to another. They cannot do that with the Resource Development Fund, and that's the only thing that applies for. You'd think it'd be easy to just go to this new regulatory body, the State Racing
1: Commission, and say, what the hell is going on? Let's stop giving so much money to horse racing purses, especially since the sport can't even cover its own
0: expenses. But the state racing commission was sort of reconsolidated to have nine members. Five of those nine members have financial interests in the sport. And they're also the ones regulating the sport that they participate in. So anything that would be sort of deleterious to racing is not going to pass that state racing commission. The horse racing industry has only given Pennsylvania back
1: about $9 million a year in tax revenue. I mean, it costs the state about $20 million annually for the racing commission to regulate the horse racing industry in the first place. So, to me, that's hustling backwards when you're earning less than half of the money that you put in. And as for the dudes on the commission, well...
0: The law actually said that they don't report to the governor, they don't report to the Secretary of Agriculture, they don't even report to the people of Pennsylvania, they report to the head of the commission. So the State Racing Commission kind of became this like insulated agency within state government that really has no accountability. And all
1: of this is basically the result of one thing, Racino's. Sticking with Pennsylvania as our case study, in 2003, before slots and casino games were introduced at racetracks, 90% of purses were paid from bets on the races. But by 2019, that number was down to only 11%, and the rest was subsidized by the state. So
0: Racino's, in a way might have been a bit of a poison chalice because it created this sense of dependence of the racetracks on these casinos on something that had nothing to do with what happened on the racetrack. Now, the arguments in the industry are that racing is too big to fail, that those subsidies can't be pulled away.
1: After casino slots were introduced, racetracks, breeders, horse owners, they didn't have to think about how to get people back to the track anymore. They weren't thinking,
0: how can we get more people here? How can we have better racing? How can we entice more people to be involved in this sport? Instead, all they cared about was, let's make sure that enough people are betting the slots. And really,
1: it was like, let's do what we can to make sure we can keep these subsidies going. Even though the purses have increased, races happen less frequently, and the audience numbers in the stands have dwindled. And it's not just other gambling options that are hurting their profits the industry's reputation has been struggling for a lot of reasons. Whether it's drugs within the sport.
0: More than two dozen people are facing charges and what investigators are calling an international scheme to drug racehorses to make them run faster.
1: Or questions about the treatment of animals competing.
0: New tragedy at Santa Anita, the second horse death in 24 hours and the 41st in just over a year.
1: Back in 2019, When 49 horses died at the Santa Anita racetrack in Southern California, news started to trickle out that more than a thousand horses were dying at racetracks across America every year. It was front page news across the country week after week for several months. It called more attention to the industry. It made people ask, why do we want to save this sport anyway? This ancient pastime, horse racing. It doesn't seem to have an audience anymore. But so many of us are still paying for it, this sport of kings. Makes you wonder if it's time to unseat the kings and put this sport out to pasture. But is that even possible?
0: So I think people will start to pay more attention to the economics of racing, probably when they start to maybe also pay attention to just like the other aspects of racing that just make it anachronistic in modern day life. Like it is a sport in which horses die like every day participating in that sport. And I think there have been a lot of, you know, animal rights causes that have changed things that never, that seems pretty ingrained in American society, like SeaWorld, like Something like even greyhound racing is sort of on the way out. I think, like, as people pay more attention to maybe the animal rights aspects to something like horse racing, then they might start to also ask, like, why is this being subsidized, like, with so much public money? Some folks might think, hey,
1: we should save this sport. It's been around basically, like, forever. But I'm sure people might have said the same thing about I don't know, the gladiator combats from the super old-school Roman amphitheaters? Of course we're going to keep watching this entertainment. is what we do. But there's something funny or sad about this whole story. How one pastime that basically survives on gambling leans on another form of gambling just to stay afloat. But that's not the only leaning that it's doing. It's leaning on us, the taxpayers. Think about where the money that's going to the tracks could be going schools roads hospitals i don't know some things that all of us use a whole lot more of than the racetrack and usually when you gamble there's a slight chance of you winning but year after year states have been coming up short so at what point do you just fold and go home and use your money on something you know will actually deliver Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And, of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the U.K., 2 pounds 49 And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Remember the Heaney family from our Balloon Boy episode who went on that reality show, Wife Swap? Well, we got a chance to speak to a producer from the show, and we really go behind the scenes. That's next week. I'm
0: in the office, same place, and everybody's tuned in to CNN because they're following this story about a boy trapped inside of a flying saucer
1: balloon. And I was like, huh, I had my headphones in. I was jamming at my desk and I looked up and I'm like, where is this? And I was like,
0: oh my God, is that Colorado? And I immediately knew. I was like, Fort Collins, Colorado, oh goodness. I just knew it, I just knew it.
1: The sheet is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Production help from Megan Dietrich. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.